0: But I think a lot of people are still teaching with the paradigm that like just knowing something is you're going to be able to do it. Oh, here's the counter to this move. The reason he's not countering the move, the reason he's not blocking the move is because he's not seeing it in time. And that's a much more complex issue than saying, oh, his, he doesn't know the right defense. It's, it's a much more complex issue than just tac- technical or tactical. And then we can, it's easy to conflate these things and be like, oh, I'm just going to buy a new instructional video. Instructional videos are great. Don't get me wrong. But just just seeing like an instructional video like, oh, this is how this world champion blocks a kick. I'm going to be able to they are not going to be able to block a kick until you develop the perception decision action. And that's most effectively done in structured sparring small slice games. There are some workarounds, some other things you can do tactically or fight IQ wise to, to kind of mitigate that.
1: Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Fronda. In today's episode, we're joined by Michael Demko, head instructor of the Wrecking Crew BJJ Family Martial Arts School. Remember to like, share, and subscribe, and go check out our Forever White Belt merchandise. We've got coffee mugs, hats, sweatshirts, and more. As a black belt under living legends Higgin Machado and Eric Paulson, Mike Demko brings a wealth of experience to the mats. His coaching prowess has led fighters to amateur and professional championships with many making their mark in major promotions like Bellator. Not to mention, Mike guides one of the best kids teams in the country, consistently dominating local tournaments and NAGA worlds. Our paths crossed at the 2023 BJJ Globetrotters Arizona camp, where Mike's session on getting better at getting better, learning and skill acquisition for Jiu-Jitsu left an indelible mark. We delve into the intricacies of his unique style and teaching methods, Today's is a special episode. It's more of a masterclass on deliberate training. We'll be covering a ton of critical information for coaches and students alike, so make sure to grab a notebook and take notes as needed. We will also provide a download link in the show notes to the outline and mind map PDF related to what we cover in the episode. Other shows would possibly charge for this kind of information, but we're providing this to you for free, so enjoy and re-watch or re-listen to it as needed. And with that... I give you Michael Demko. Mike, welcome to the show, man.
0: Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
1: I met Mike at the 2023 Arizona camp in November, one of a couple talks he was doing on a side mat that I just kind of stumbled into midway. And it was just absolutely fascinating. It was on a topic, I believe it was like deliberate practice. And as of late, we've heard a lot of people talk about ecological approach or specific training, but that's a more sort of like a micro, mid-range sort of way of thinking about training. What I don't hear a lot about is more of the macro, the higher level stuff. When people think of higher level training, they think of things. like curriculum or something like that but what's so fascinating about your talk is it was encompassed a lot of different things in terms of individual practitioners and how coaches can think of these things. So it was almost like a an umbrella to all these things underneath.
0: And That was a, a really good like kind of synopsis and intro into what we're going to talk about.
1: First, give us a little bit of background on yourself.
0: Let's start with this. I grew up in a more shorts family. My parents uh, taught Aikido. And so I did several more shorts growing up. I was always like, if I look back at my old Halloween pictures, they were like, I was a ninja for Halloween. I think I was a ninja for Halloween, like every single Halloween. There was like no question uh, when I was going to be yeah, I think I wanted to be a professional wrestler when I grew up so I wanted to be like a ninja professional wrestler so you know started to learn jiu-jitsu from books and videos and then my mom encouraged me to start wrestling and it was they didn't have it at my school so I went to a neighboring school in the next school district and did wrestling and, and kind of learned jiu-jitsu on my own to, uh, from books and videos and it was always like well what do you want for your birthday what do you want for Christmas so I said I want these panther videos uh, panther was the main purveyor of uh, instruction martial arts sure, instructional videos back in the day and yeah panther productions yeah, panther, productions, all panther productions yeah you would get like five moves maybe in like an hour video maybe like 20 minutes of slow-mo for each for each move but um, you know I would learn what I can and and go down to the newsstand and try to get grappling books and magazines and and kind of learn that so I was learning on my own and my brother who's older than me was living in Pittsburgh and he was doing judo so we would kind of bounce ideas we would take what I learned and we would kind of share ideas what I learned in wrestling what he learned in judo what we learned from books and videos and magazines I kind of had access to other martial artists too you know I was like hey come here I'd get some of my dad's students and be like, hey, come here. I want to try, I want to try this jiu move on you, you know, <laughs> or, or you know, whoever I can get my hands on. Hey, let me let me twist you up for a second and, and see what happens. So, you know, th- then I started to um, go to seminars and, and workshops and that. And I got involved with Eric Paulson, you know, later down the road. And I think that created, you know, a little bit of uniqueness in, in my style, too, because I, I didn't have a regular instructor. I had to do things, you know, kind of differently. Because I live in a small town, a small area. There was no jiu-jitsu per se in my area. So I had to go and travel to different seminars and, and basically a, a lot of um, self-teaching. Before, we had the um, all the access to information there is now. It's crazy what there is now. What's
1: really interesting about you as well is how wrestling informed your jiu-jitsu. One of the fascinating things I found is that jiu-jitsu, oftentimes you'll see these flowy type of jiu-jitsu people and um, yours was a bit different. Can you can you expand on that a little bit?
0: Yeah, that, that kind of happened naturally because... I was learning jiu-jitsu from books and videos. So I would learn like, oh, this is an arm bar. This is a rear naked choke. This is a guillotine choke. And from watching UFC and stuff, but I I never got that. Like, okay, let's fist bump. Let's, let's high five fist bump. And I'm going to be real relaxed. and I'm going to lure you into a bunch of traps. And and kind of the typical way like jiu-jitsu fighters fight. I I never got that kind of culture with it. Because that's not not something that you experience from a a book or video. It wasn't until later that I'd already been training a lot. And already had kind of developed my style. It was a little bit rougher, a little more. And I would say like American wrestling. Because I I think international wrestlers are known to be a little more uh, like kind of slicker. Like say the Russian wrestlers and the Iranian wrestlers. Maybe they don't move as much. And and they're a little more tactical overall and set up their moves a little more. And these are generalizations. But it kind of was like an accent, Just like, you know, say if someone learns a, a language right? Their native language oftentimes has an accent on the new language they learn. So I, I think the, the wrestling that I learned in my formative years, learning grappling, has, has that accent on my jiu-jitsu. So my jiu-jitsu is always, it's not quite the sm- always the smoothest in the world. It's, it's a little it's a little rough here and there. So it's, it's just, it's kind of like, I would, I would say like a wrestling accent on it.
1: I know you have a instructional actually um, on fanatics on the cowcatcher.
0: Exactly, yeah. When we call it the, the cobra. The producers, I said, we want to call the cobra or the cowcatcher. They said, let's call it the cobra. I wish I would have went Cowcatcher, because more people know it by that name. Tito Ortiz called it the Cobra. He hit it on Yuki Kondo in the UFC.
1: Just a reminder, to please give us a five-star review on Apple Music and Spotify and become a VIP member for only ninety-nine cents a month. Get ad-free episodes at anchor.fm forward slash forever white belt, forward slash subscribe, and check us out on Instagram at Forever White Belt Show. Go buy your Forever White Belt swag at T Spring forward slash forever dash white dash belt. Check us out on YouTube now at Forever White Belt. Finally, if you ever get to beautiful Northern California, please come roll with us at North Bay Jiu-Jitsu in Marin County, just north of San Francisco. There are amazing instructors and everyone there are great people. Mention the podcast and get two weeks free. Mike, let's, let's talk about what we're going to discuss today. It's so important for both coaches out there, academy owners and uh, practitioners alike, deliberate practice.
0: Deliberate practice is basically, um, what we're talking about is, how do you practice? Because you think about it, jujitsu is, is a practice, right? So h- how do we go about doing the thing that's going to make us better? Because we're all there to improve, right? If someone's doing some, any activity, they're there, they want to get better at that activity, be involved and get better at that activity. How do you get better at any activity? People, Everybody knows this, even a kid knows this, we have to practice. But the question is, how do you practice most? Most effectively. And what we see is a lot of practice that people do is, is basically naive practice. And this all comes from the work of uh, Dr. Anders Ericsson. And uh, there's a lot of books that were spinoffs of of his work, like Talents Overrated, Talent Code, Outliers. There's various other ones, but they're all based off his work on studying the science of expertise. And when he be- began to study the science of expertise, he was studying how people practiced. So he initially did all, all the uh, the research on that from various fields. And very, like I said, When I say various fields, he he studied a lot of different fields and studied how people attained expert performance in those fields. And it was, it's all related to the nature of how they practice. And the, one of the first distinctions he makes is naive practice versus effective practice or purposeful practice. So there's a few different names. Some people call it deep practice, purposeful practice, deliberate practice. Dr. Erickson goes a few steps further with deliberate practice about how it is a little bit more involved than maybe deep practice or purposeful practice. But anyway, um, those terms aren't going to be like super important for now. It's just the idea, naive practice versus effective practice. What most people engage in oftentimes is naive practice. And I really love that word because... Because naive means someone that's not aware, right? They're kind of ignorant to that fact. They're, they're not aware of something. So sometimes we might think that just doing something is getting us better at it. So right now, right away, we have to talk about automaticity. So what happens when someone first learns something, they start to get better at it. So you learn how to drive. Like, you know, say a 16-year-old, when they're learning how to drive, it's, it's a little bit scary. After two years, you know, a year, two years, whatever it is, they get good enough. But they don't necessarily get better after that. So just because we've been driving, you know, longer however old we are, doesn't mean that we're much better than we were 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Okay, because we've just been doing it. We haven't been practicing it. That's that point of automaticity. Once you get good enough at something, unless you deliberately do something to push your limits, unless you have clear objectives, unless you're pushing your limit, unless you're challenging yourself and you have an idea of what it takes to get better and you have practice and uh, drills designed around that, you're not necessarily going to get better at anything. And it works like that in, in any, any kind of field. And they've studied this across fields too. Say like experienced accountants may not have been better than rookie accountants experienced doctors might not have been better than people just coming out of uh, med school. Same thing with lawyers, same thing with judges and, and, and any any kind of field like that. Just doing the activity didn't necessarily make you better. Dr. Anders Erickson goes into the book, it's, it's called Peak. He goes into talking, I think it was like sonograms or mammograms or something. And he, and he talks about like how the people that, that go and read those don't ever get better at them because they don't get the feedback about it. But just because someone's been doing something, I mean, they might they might be very good. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that, that you sometimes shouldn't go for the more experienced person. Experience isn't always synonymous with expertise, I would say. You know, sometimes it is. It, it just depends. But a lot of times it's not unless they're really purposefully practicing the stuff they're doing. So you always have to look at yourself and say, how much better am I, am I at jujitsu? especially once you get up in ranks, once you're purple belt, brown belt? How much better am I than I was a year ago, two years ago? Now, obviously at white belt, because white belts start out, and you know how white belts start out. They're like, yeah. And, they, and they're like, oh, bro, I'm dead after 30 seconds. So obviously, that white belt, like a three-month to a six-month difference is huge. It's a world of difference. And a one-year difference, it's a world of difference. But the, the further you go, the more in the automaticity we get. And sometimes improvements become harder. So that's a, it's a double-edged sword. It's called like good is the enemy of great. We're good, but it's going to take a lot to be great. So sometimes just being good, is, like I said, is that automaticity where we have to do a lot to get better because we kind of plateaued there.
1: But I see, like you were saying, good is the enemy of great, though.
0: That's where the, um, the deliberate practice model helps. The first thing is clear objectives. So the more clear your objectives, the better your results are going to be. You have to come in with clear objectives beyond just like, I'm going to go to class today. You know, you know, stretch everyone does. I can't demonstrate now because we're sitting down, but they sit with their legs out like this, and then they lean to this side, and they lean to that side, and then they talk. Maybe they'll do the butterfly one where they'll put their feet together. And then they'll bounce their knees up and down. And I think the only reason why people do that stretch before jujitsu class even starts is so they can sit around and talk to everybody and act like they're doing something. You know, grab somebody, work on something, have an idea of what you want to do. Even within that, go further into that objective. Like you're drilling an arm bar. It's like, how effective is my spin? Am I spinning efficiently on this? You know, am I doing it effortlessly? Because if you're exerting effort when the, a partner is not resisting and there's no variability, how are you going to do it fluidly under live conditions? You know, say you're doing a wrestling takedown or a shot. It's, it's clunky when you're shadow drilling it. It's going to be clunky when you do it with a partner. It's going to be even infinitely more clunky when you're doing it with a resisting opponent. So the objectives start there. Like, how specific can we get with the objectives of a move? Not just do this move well. Like, I'm going to lower my level very precipitously, boom, and drop into a stance where I'm very powerful and loaded and ready to explode through the guy. When I shoot, I'm, my knee is going to go down. I'm going to shoot hard, my shoulder into, his, into the stomach, and I'm going to come up. These kind of things are we're really going to look at. Like, I'm going to do an arm bar. I want to be able to spin effortlessly on my back, my legs clamped with them there. You know, I'm going to ask the guy, are you able to? move or pull out and he should feel like he's trapped. These are the kind of things we got to look at. Not just, "Oh, coach said put my legs here, so I'm going to put my legs here." Why? That's going to get in we're talking about mental representations, well uh, the principles and stuff. We'll talk about that too. The first element is having those clear objectives we're training. And and that that can be when you're drilling when you're doing situations or when you're rolling live. When when you practice, you have to have the idea of challenge or progression, or desirable difficulty. So th- that's the problem with automaticity. If you just do something, you're not necessarily going to get better at it. So someone could just go out and golf, right, and just hit the balls. They don't necessarily get better. And this is where um, Dr. Erickson, so he, they looked at the the very best musicians over 10 or 20 years, whatever it was. They discovered that the prodigies early weren't necessarily the ones that were the best performers, whatever it was, 10 years down the road. And they looked at their practice journals and they found that the, the ones that were the best after say 10 years were the ones that engaged in the most effective practice. And for musicians, the most effective practice was their solo practice. And that's a little bit different for jujitsu because that's probably not the most effective practice for jujitsu. But for musicians, it was their solo practice. The least effective form of practice for musicians, for concert, for this concert musicians was jamming with their friends. Let's just get together and jam with their friends because they were just it wasn't an effective practice with with clear objectives and it didn't have the desirable difficulty, the progression, or the challenging the limits of where where they were now. So for musicians, they had to really isolate themselves and work on that. Now jujitsu is very different because you have to do that against against a person. But we you have to ask yourself what's the most effective type of practice for jujitsu. When you're drilling something, if you're just doing a move and there's no new challenge to it, it's not more challenging than it was last time, you're not going to get better at it. It's just like everyone knows this with lifting weights, but we forget this when it comes to jujitsu practice, right? What do we call it's it's called progressive overload. How do you get bigger and stronger in strength training? Progressive overload. So if I start out squatting 135 pounds, I mean that's not much, but say whatever, bench pressing, squatting. If you start someone squatting 135 pounds after the course of two years, is that how much they should be squatting for for the same loading parameters? The same weight, reps, sets? No. It should be going up. So we have to do the same thing with our training, but strength training is a little more quantifiable, right? Because all we got to do is we can say, let's add a few more plates, okay, or let's do a few more reps or a few more sets. And this is the question. How do we increase the intensity or increase the progression in our training? How do we make our training progressive so that we can improve? How do we make it challenging? How do we challenge our current limitations? You have to challenge your current limitations to get better. And I know this seems simple, but like I always say, John Wooden said, the little things are easy to do. They're just as easy not to do. So we, we might neglect them very easily, say, and just go about business as normal, engaging in naive practice and not have appropriate challenge in our practice. The next element is is feedback. Feedback is, is huge. And when we look at feedback, various forms, really. Feedback can come from a coach. It can come from a training partner, come from a teacher or whatever. And I tell my students this all the time. The most effective feedback comes from yourself when you can self-correct. A coach is good because they, they know more than you and they're seeing from the outside so they see more. And you need that. I mean, you need it from your training partners and the upper belts. But the corrections you make yourself are the most important ones because then you're starting to build that understanding yourself. You're starting to build those mental representations yourself. You're starting to build that really good conceptual knowledge and the ability to to correct yourself when you're doing something. And what we'll talk about is how to get into designing your moves and what you're doing so that you can generate your own feedback. Because if you have a good coach, yeah, they'll give you good feedback. But you might be one person in a class of 40, 50, 30, whatever people. Unless you're getting private lessons, you're not going to have that constant feedback.
1: I think that's one of the um, things that people don't talk about as much as they should is, especially white belts, that they have to eventually take ownership of their own practice, their own training as well, um, that they think that your coach is going to guide you all the way for 10, 15 years or whatever (laughs) or more. is uh, a bit of a misnomer. And as you mentioned in a class of, you know, 20, 30, 40 people, Good luck with that.
0: It's kind of a double-edged sword there too, because at a certain point, like yeah, the, the white belts need to just listen because they don't know that much. You don't want that white belt thinking, "What if you did it this way? What if you did it that way?" Now just do it the way we're doing. You're 100% correct because they have to understand why they're doing what they're doing, not just because coach said so. Try to understand that. Maybe ask that question. Like you could ask your coach that. You could ask someone else that. Or you could ask yourself that. It's probably the best if you ask yourself that first. And then you can go back and then ask your, you know, ask an upper belt or a peer or a coach and say, why Why does coach say put my leg here when I'm doing the triangle? Why is he making a big deal about the way my foot needs to be positioned? And I, th- I think they, they'll start that process of really developing those, those mental representations and understand the principles of why they're doing what they're doing. And that's huge because you'll see that common thread run through all these moves. You know, I tell my students all the time, they'll say, how do I defend a triangle? How do I defend a triangle choke, an arm triangle, a, a darts choke, an anaconda choke, right? And, and we know that they have to be pressing on one side of your neck with their bicep and the other side with your own shoulder. So if you're, the other shoulder never touches that side of your neck you're probably not going to get choked so that's the type of principle kind of mental representation that people should start that's an example of how we understand that so when you start to see those common trends like oh so this is why coach is saying keep that space between your shoulder you know say you get an arm triangle that's why we're grabbing our hands like this or creating space or getting bigger why are we doing that why is why is that a common denominator so i I think that's that's something that white belts definitely white belts blue belt everybody has to understand the principles of why we're doing what we're doing and you'll start to see those, those common threads and that's That becomes what we're going to talk about later. I guess we'll get into in a couple more steps is those mental representations. And and then another element is having standards. And this was one thing that differentiated just effective practice from deliberate practice. Certain fields, Dr. Erickson said had more standards. So he was more likely to label them as being deliberate practice as opposed to just purposeful practice so like maybe in japan there's special ways they train violinists so they they have a really really good protocol a good canon a good standard as far as training so some fields have that and I, I think other fields don't have that as much maybe like violin piano they they know the, the exact way students should be training and they have the proof now because they have young kids playing things that were only the master composers were playing back you know back in yesteryear in jiu-jitsu, I think we have that to an extent, but it's a little bit all over the place. It would be good for students and instructors to develop their own standards based on how they want to train their students. We kind of have that to an extent, but then sometimes not so much because you'll have people like their idea is they see the buggy choke, you know, it came out of nowhere and these guys are hitting buggy chokes at high level competition. And then you get like white belts that are like, I'm going to master the buggy choke. You mastering the buggy choke means you're going to get your guard passed all day. Or if someone is aware of the buggy choke, you might not hit it on them at all. So you're spending all this time mastering the buggy choke. How about your guard retention there? They see the tip of the iceberg. Those guys already have a whole thing below the surface of this iceberg where they have all the other fundamental skills like an elite world-class level. Or like, oh, I'm going to let the guy mount me so I can push him off and heel hook him. Those aren't good standards to set for yourself. That kind of goes with the Pareto principle. I think we talked the 80-20. You, we can apply that to everything. The Pareto principle is like the 80-20 distribution, like 20% of your carpet gets 80% of the traffic. 80% of your income will come from 20% of your clients. 80% of your problems will come from 20% of your people. So the, most of our results might be coming from only 20% of our efforts. What are those 20% and how do we invest in those more so we can have even better results? And then we have mental representations. Mental representations is how we chunk data or information learning or skill acquisition i guess the way to think of that is like dogs and cats right so say if you had an alien from outer space or someone that live somewhere where they never saw a dog or a cat or a giraffe or a zebra or a horse they might think they're all the same thing because they all have four legs they all you know they all walk kind of horizontal but then like us we know we said that's a dog that's a cat that's a thing we don't have to think about it we don't have to sit there and dissect it like if someone didn't really know that much difference between a horse and a the zebra might have to remember, like, oh, this one has stripes, right? You know, even a kid, you could flash, like, a flash card. What's this? A horse? What's this? A zebra? That information is, is in a, like, a chunk. It's already, like, one thing. Boom, flash. You see it. It's a horse. It's a zebra. But to someone that knew horses, right? You could, show them flashcards of all these different horses and they would know each one right away and they wouldn't have to chunk it down like if we saw those we'd have to be like eh, big as a Clydesdale quarter that sounds like a smaller horse they're supposed to be fast maybe that one's like, and we'd have to think about it but they'd already know it and they talked about that with chess players chess players guess what they had incredible memory but only for the chess board their memory was no better than anyone else okay they would show them these chess boards with different arrangements of different pieces and they were far better at recalling them then lesser chess players and non-chess players, like far better, like amazing recall on that. And it wasn't because their memory was necessarily better. It wasn't just like this blank memory ability. It was because when they saw the chess boards, it told them a story. There was basically a narrative there. It was a mental representation. Just like if you or I saw a jiu-jitsu match and we saw what happened. Imagine someone that doesn't know jiu-jitsu or wrestling or combat sports and they go like say you bring a family member to one of your jujitsu matches they've never seen it before right and you ask them to recall what happened well he um he grabbed this guy then the other guy grabbed him then they rolled around and they did this and they did that but you or i could probably describe the move like the, the match tit for tat we have chunks of information that we knew that we understand about that it's like, now they tied up this guy, pool guard. He passed the half guard. He he did this. He went back to full guard. He stood up. He broke his guard. He passed his guard. This guy, turtle, he almost had the pass. And we understand that because those are all chunks of information. That's called your mental representations. We want those to become more refined as we continue to train. The more refined our mental representations, the more sophisticated our mental representations, the greater a level of expertise will be. Mental representations deal with the, the chunking of information. And it also deals with how you chunk those actual physical skills you have to. So sometimes my students ask me, they're like, what'd you do right there? And I say, I don't know. I have to see. Because I have to deconstruct it. Because once you've done something enough, it, it becomes subconscious. It becomes in that chunk. So for me to explain it, I have to take apart that chunk. If you've been training a long time, you have to deconstruct your skills because those are, those are stored in like chunks of information in folders, basically packets of information. So mental representation relates to both the, I would say relates to both the theoretical and to the practical applicable actual motor skills of, of doing things.
1: I mean, there's tons of metaphors, but like uh, learning a language, for instance, or just learning language or English, the way a small child talks versus an adult, that refinement of the English language itself versus, you know, me talk pretty someday.
0: The way children learn, and they learn so well with languages because it, it goes right into their subconscious mind. A kid could learn like several languages at a time and not even have, have an accent from it.
1: Oftentimes you'll watch a certain professional or several professionals put out instructionals or something that are not very well done. You realize just because they have all these gold medals, as you mentioned, they're not very adept at communicating the nuances of their particular what got them. All of those gold medals and all those championships versus someone who has to, as you mentioned, sort of deconstruct what they've done and actually articulate it to students and teach it. That's the skill of teaching, some of which we're discussing here.
0: That's a great point. Absolutely. I, I don't think you can confuse someone's actual skill with their ability to convey that skill or teach to others or coach others. And I used to fall in that trap too because I was big into instructional videos. I was like, oh, this guy's a world champion. I got to get his video. Say boxing, most of the best boxing coaches weren't boxers.
1: NFL coaches, same thing too.
0: I think jujitsu is different. Like you have a lot of great coaches that were great practitioners, but
1: well, John Danaher
0: is, the, I mean, the most famous right now. He, I don't think he ever competed. People like him because he explains things in, in mental representations because he tells you why, what the, the essential condition must be met. He's a world champion when it comes to teaching the concepts of why he's doing what he's doing. And I, I think a lot of teachers take it for granted because the way they do something might not be the way they do something. It's how they think they do something. They're like, I always do this, this way. Then if you watch him do it live, it might be totally different. It could be absolutely different. This is something that I want to talk about is question assumptions because someone put like a tennis ball or something under their chin. Or something's ridiculous. They're like, oh, you have a hard time keeping your chin down when you box. Put a tennis ball under your chin and practice sparring like that. It is totally throwing off your punching form. So we see things like that. It has no relevance to reality at all. All it's doing is throwing off your form. It's counterproductive practice based on a faulty assumption. Always question assumptions. And like I said, when, with your instructor, do it respectfully. Maybe do it on your own time. Don't be the dude that's asking him every day. Hey, what if I do? Hey, what, you know, figure out, learn the move, figure it out and then start to, you know, form your own opinions. We have access to you know, the best information out there you can you can go on even just youtube everything's free look up stuff see how it's done live people tell you pinch your elbows in when you shoot a double leg well let's go look at a bunch of people a bunch of college world champions whoever even high school champions see if their elbows stay pinched in when they shoot they might not go out as wide as, the, as someone in football because they're trying to cover a big area to tackle someone but i guarantee you their elbows are not pinched in as, as they teach you when you when you drill it they're like and people might say well we're teaching it that way so they'll do it some maybe but maybe we're just overemphasizing something that's not even, you know, relevant to reality. Like in the West, you hear this a lot. People tell when you're lifting stuff up, you know, this is something a dad would say, like lift with your legs, not your back. What's, what's that mean? You know, I have a degree in exercise science. If I understand I keep my back totally straight and just bend my knees, my knees are going to go way far forward. I'm going to be totally off balance. And how do we do sandbag trainings? We bend at our hips. We bend at our knees. And we even curl our back some. And, and, and we do those things. So we see that's what's actually effective for lifting up a sandbag. So that, that that would fly in the face of a lot of the assumptions that we have. So some people say, say like a wrestling stance, they'll just tell people off the bat, they'll be like, bend your knees more. Well, how, how do you know? You're not be able to calculate how much that person needs to bend their knees. Some things are wrong or wrong. Yeah, a lot of, I'll tell my students, a lot of them stand up too straight. I usually tell them, bend forward at the waist more. I think people need to get, get comfortable bending forward at the waist. International wrestler stand, like, totally bent over at the waist. Just stuff like that. You know, like, oh, keep your knees bent. Well, why? Let's see how much we need to keep our knees bent. And let's see, maybe we need to lean forward more and, and do this and that more. We talked about throwing the, the right cross. I did a whole series on that, and the lead hand never stayed by the chin, ever. And then people would say, well, it was because it was a knockout punch that you... I said, okay, I'll find a non-knockout punch. And, and this is the same thing. I found the ones that look the absolute straightest, most precise technique of throwing a, a right cross. This is the key. When you put it in slow motion, it was not like it looked full speed. If you put any of those things in slow motion, they're not what they seem like they are full speed. And we have the ability to access all that information. All you need to do is go on YouTube, do something. put it. You can put your YouTube videos in slow motion and see what happens happens. See how someone's taking a shot. See how they're throwing a right cross. See how they're, they're doing a, a sweep or a leg lock or whatever. And then use many examples. Okay. So use that immersion technique. And then from that immersion technique, you have to form like a, a common denominator of doing something. Find what that common thread through all those things are, that mental representation. How can we chunk all the things we learned and find what, those, what the fundamentals are, or the underlying principles? I started doing this practice with, with a few recipes I was working on. But, but I realized when I immerse myself, I have all these ideas and I forget where they came from. I was like, okay, I'm going to immerse myself, but then I'm going to write down the themes from each of these. I'm going to find common denominators in everything and, and what I do with that. So if you're looking at like five different recipes, I'm going to find what the common denominators are. You know, if I'm making a meat dish or something like that, I'm going to find what's the ratio of salt to the amount of meat. What's the ratio of amount of spices to the amount of meat? And you may you may very well find a common denominator. It was the same thing in jujitsu. If you're studying a whole bunch of a whole bunch of techniques, and especially if you're really studying it and questioning assumptions, you're going to find out what the common denominator is, and you're not going to get caught up in the minutiae as much. Like because that happens. Like this professor says this. This professor says that. You'll go crazy. Both of them are variable work. What's the common denominator between those? So for deliberate practice, really we need clear objectives. We need to make sure that we have appropriate challenge. So one's clear objectives, two is appropriate challenge. Three, we need to have feedback from our coaches and most importantly, ourselves. We need to have good coaching or instruction. If you don't have a coach, you can use instruction online. And ideally, we should start to develop standards for ourselves, although it's not as maybe spelled out as a violin school or something like that. In jujitsu, we should start developing standards. And those don't have to be universal. Those can be within your own school or yourself. And we need to be building those mental representations. And that's how we chunk what we're learning into effective chunks so that we're much more effective with it. And that could be theoretical, or it could be practical skill, like physical skill knowledge is building those mental representations. So that's, that's basically the formula that I've summarized from all the resources I've studied on deliberate practice.
1: At the talk, you had this continuum, the spectrum, one portion saying static and on the other end, something saying dynamic. And there was a, it was almost like a timeline in between. Can you discuss what was happening there, what that whole thought process is and the things that fall beneath those?
0: Yeah. What we look at is we call it the static to dynamic continuum. So when most people practice, say you start practicing and you're you're drilling with a totally cooperative opponent that's just basically like a grappling dummy. That's a totally static, totally cooperative, totally like in a vacuum. Everything's controlled. Everything's predictable. And th- that's a very good and actually appropriate way to begin to acquire new skills. So sometimes you have to do it that way because there's a lot going on. Like, you know, people are grabbing the wrong way. They're doing this, they're doing that. And that's typically what you see in most schools like, okay, we're going to do a scissor sweep. Okay, so you're going to grab the collar, you're going to grab the sleeve, you're going to shrimp onto your side, you're going to pull, you're going to scissor sweep them, and then he'll get back up and you scissor sweep him again. And there's no resistance, there's no anything. Like- it's a good way to learn initially, a good way to acquire skills initially. That would be at the totally cooperative end. Now, at the other end, And what you see in most Jiu-Jitsu schools is free roll or live. I call it live or you call it rolling, whatever, free rolling. So most Jiu-Jitsu schools are like, they'll show you three, maybe three moves a class done against a totally cooperative partner. And then they'll say, okay, now it's time to live roll. There's a big chasm. There's a a big gap between drilling a move on a totally cooperative partner and then going to live rolling. What's in between? So those are the two ends of the spectrum. It's totally cooperative to totally competitive. What's in between that is, I believe, our most effective training. What we do after we have it down, the basic steps down totally cooperatively, we want to take our partner and we want to add some timing to maybe what we're doing. And this can be as simple as I had to do my students. We were drilling single legs with the kids class last night. We start out, the guy stands like a scarecrow. The kid shoots in a single leg. We want to make sure their, their mechanical form is correct. So how do we get from totally cooperative drilling to adding some um, some some live elements? So let, let's first, let's talk about what's the difference between like regular cooperative drilling and live. What what elements what elements do we have? So we know that if it's totally cooperative drilling, we're just doing an arm bar, uh scissor sweep, a single leg, a double leg. At first maybe, like I said, that person might be standing still. But in a real match they're doing what?
1: Resisting and moving.
0: They're moving. They're resisting. They might not be there, so there's timing. They're gonna resist you. And there's variability too. So they could be blocking you any number of ways or not moving in a way that you, that's conducive for your move. So say you're trying to do a Kimura. Their hands are never there for you to do the Kimura. They're leaning way back. You can't break them down. So that's the variability. So what we have at the far end, the very static end of the spectrum, you have totally cooperative. At the far end, there's movement, motion, you know, there's timing, there's variability, there's resistance, and there's opposition okay, so let's talk about if i'm holding a pad and you're hitting a pad so i hold a pad up just holding it and you can jab it whenever you want i'll say i'm going to hold the pad up and you step in and jab it it's totally static next thing we add is a reaction element i'm going to flash the pad up as soon as i flash it you hit it that's creating a little more difficulty for you right because you have to there's a reaction element there's a timing element now we'll add motion to that. I'm going to say, I'm going to move around with you. and We're going to be in our stands moving around. I'm going to flash the pad and then you're going to hit it. So not only do you have to react timing wise, you have to coordinate your movement. You may have to accelerate or decelerate or change direction to be able to do that. So that is more difficult. So we have timing. We have motion. Then you have variability. I say, okay, maybe I'll flash up the pad for a jab. Maybe I'll flash it up for an uppercut. Maybe I'll flash it up for a hook or a knee. Okay. So then there's variability. So that's going to add a lot, a lot more difficulty to what, to what you're doing. And then we have the idea of, of resistance. And this doesn't really go as much with the, maybe the pad hitting, but like, say if we're, we're doing something, you can shoot a single leg, but you might shoot a single leg and not move me. Or you might, you might try this triangle and I'm going to hulk out of it or you're not going to get my arm across. So that's, that's where that re- resistance comes in. And then the other element you have is there's opposition. And, and this one, I think this one's key too, is like in every martial arts movie ever, uh, Bruce Lee went to fight O'Hara, I think it was O'Hara, and Enter the Dragon, and O'Hara threw up the board and punched it, and Bruce Lee said, boards don't hit back. You have opposition, right? So in a real match, you're hitting pads when we're drilling, but in a real thing, I might be hitting you as you're going to hit me. I might be hitting you after you hit me. I might be hitting you before you hit me. Think about that. I mean, that's where that chasm is. And that's a, and it's a really good example to talk about like boxing or kickboxing. And I think that really illustrates it well. Like you think you know, just hitting the pads is going to enable you to, to, spar. Well, no, no, it might be a start to develop some skills, but no, there's a big chasm. And it's the same thing in jujitsu. Just so like with the kids class last night, we're doing single legs. We have the one guy stand like a scarecrow and the other guy shoots in because kids do things their own way. We make it really regimented. want to make sure that their techniques good. I mean. And technique, um, uh, you know, it's with the ecological method, I agree with them. Technique's not exact. It's not the same for every person. It's not the same even person. It's not even the same with the same person every time. But I feel like there's certain common denominators that make for good technique, basic good technique. I think there's an idea of that. And then the next the next drill is we have them move around in their stances. We want to make sure they can circle, move in their stances, and lower their level. Then after that, we say, okay, now we're going to move in our stances, and now you're going to shoot. And even when you're moving in a stance, and I give them a call, out, I'll tell them when to shoot. And I've, I try this. I have someone yell it out for me. I have to stop, accelerate, decelerate, change direction sometimes when you're moving in your stance with someone and you get a call out and they say, shoot, you have to react to that. So that's adding that motion. That's adding that timing because you don't know when that person is going to say, shoot, and you don't know exactly where you're going to be. So that's putting two of those live elements in, in a very controlled manner. So now we're starting to segue. We're starting to create a bridge over that chasm that stands between static and live. So we add a little bit of motion. We add a little bit of timing. You can add a little bit of variability. Okay. That's interleaving. That's mixing up, the shuffling of the flashcard deck. We know this from fl- from flashcards is what happens is you remember the order of the flashcards. Then if you shuffle your deck of flashcards, guess what? You're like, oh, crap. I just remember the order of them, not the actual material. So the fluency was low. So it was the order of it. Just like on a playlist. A lot of times on a, if you have a playlist you play all the time, you'll know what song's next when the next song's ending. But it's only because of that association. If you were to sit there and write out your playlist, you'd have a harder time doing it. So we're interleaving that. And say, okay, so now we're, mov- we're moving. We added motion. We added some timing. Now I say, oh, single leg. Or with our monkey wrench, they snap down. Okay, now we'll say high crotch or double leg. And that's a way to start to to bridge that gap. And what this does is this goes back to the principles of deliberate practice because now we have clear objectives. We want them to be able to stay in a stance. We want them to be able to react when we say so. We want them to be able to show good technique amidst some motion, some timing, and some variability. So now our objectives are very clear. This is more effective drilling. This is like the drilling toolbox for more effective drilling. And now they can get feedback. You see, they can get their own feedback because they can realize if they were off balance when I said shoot, that their stance probably wasn't that good. And maybe their their footwork or their motion wasn't that good. And that's the most important feedback they can get is their own their own feedback. What we do from there is we like to freeze frame a lot of times. That's the key for, for good drilling. So we say freeze frame. And I say get this far in the technique and wait there because I want to make sure you're in the right spot. Like if we're doing a, a sweep, say a butterfly guard sweep. I like the guy to really clamp on the uh, overhook side and fall all the way to their shoulder and I like to see them retract the butterfly hook leg and it, to be really tight and then to have their foot dorsiflex that means toes point to the face so they have good control. So sometimes I'll have them do half the move and say stop here I want to see each and every person has this technique right. Cuz if you just do the sweep, I can't watch 10 people at once. You may have just muscled them over, I don't know. But if you if you fall here and you fall if you fall to your side and everyone's loaded here, I'll see that you're correct. Or if we're doing like, say, a double leg takedown. If I say just don't even take them down yet, just shoot, get to the point where you're shooting into their legs and pause. I'll see you know where you are there and see that you're in a good position to finish your move. So that's going further along the spectrum, trying to bridge that gap from static to dynamic. Like I said, we add timing, we add motion, we add some resistance, we add some variability. And the key here is this is the most important thing. This is probably one of the most important things I say today is non-competitive resistance. It's constrained, non-competitive timing, variability, and resistance. That's the key, because I've talked to a lot of people about this, and we had conversations. They'd say, well, we'll tell our students, just go 30%. Go fifty percent. It's a good thought, but it means absolutely nothing. It means nothing because let me ask you something: If you have a absolutely average blue belt and they're trying to half guard sweep on a D one college wrestler, and the D one college wrestler is going thirty percent, is the blue belt still going to sweep? No. We have to understand that it's non competitive resistance. So for me, in, in drilling, the key, the key is in, if we're drilling, if we're in the, still on this step of drilling, the guy that's the Nage or Tori in Japanese terms that's doing the move, the other guy's Uke, receiving the throw or the fall. Tori slash Nage succeeds. We encode success for that. Not that failure is great, too. In drilling, we encode success. But trust me, there's a lot. Of, you know this. You've been training. There's enough failure that's going to happen in live. In drilling, we encode success. So Tori, the guy doing the move, has to win. Has to succeed in that. The other guy gives non-competitive resistance. And if you have a good chemistry and a good good training, and these guys are well-trained on how to train, okay, we'll take him to the threshold. We'll let himself correct. And that's one of the most important things. We said take it to the threshold. Actually get to the point where you might off-balance them in the move they're doing, or you might almost slip out, but you'll let them self-correct. So imagine how effective that is. You just corrected a mistake as it was happening.
1: I like that phrasing, taking them to the threshold. The threshold,
0: yes, especially good on like on a lot of defensive stuff too, because sometimes you know you, you just try something and it's too late. But if you take them to that threshold, and they get a chance to recover. They start to build those mental representations, and they, they start to understand what they need to do. And then hopefully, what happens is it becomes more autom- automatic. So that's what we do in our drilling. So the drilling becomes more alive, basically. Not I wouldn't say like live, but, but more towards it. You know, we we have more live elements, but that are constrained. So that's the difference in drilling. Nage, tore is successful. We encode success. Uke okay is there to give him resistance, and we use the. I like to use the weightlifting example. I tell my guys, I say, you're going to use a weight that's going to give you a workout. We're not going to do one rep max here, and we're not going to bro workout it here, where you're like bro help me help me bench this you know you know that one
1: yeah it's not going to failure
0: <laughs> yeah it's not no okay we're encoding success that's what we're doing and that's what we're doing in drilling and taking the th- threshold and laying that guy self-correct feedback and self-correction are the keys those are the most important important things you can do in your training so then moving further along okay making that gap from So we had totally static and dynamic, which is fine, but we shouldn't stay there because the objectives aren't clear enough and there's no challenge there. And for all intents and purposes, the the feedback isn't there and it's not building the necessary mental representation. So it's not really meeting the checkbox of of deliberate practice. So we start to to get into constrained, non-competitive resistance and some timing, some variability, some motion and some interleaving of our training and adding complexity and and stuff like that. Now we're going to get into, we cross a little bit over and we kind of go to live. For me, the difference between drilling And live is, when it's live, there's opposition or competition. Now, I'm going to make a caveat here. Just because something's competitive, it can be kind of playfully competitive. You know this. I'm sure you've rolled with some higher belts, and they played positions with you, right?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: Sometimes, if you had more, like, rolls to the death with lower belts than you had with higher belts. Yeah, Yeah, sure. Okay, yeah.
1: It's always the blue belts, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, yeah.
0: You know, and a lot of times at like Globetrotters camp, it's, it's kind of like an unwritten rule. Sometimes when us black belts start rolling, we, you know, sometimes it just depends. Like sometimes it goes real intense, but sometimes it's just like we kind of trade in exchange positions, you know. Interestingly, and this is kind of out there, but it was a study in rats. All animals like to wrestle. So rats engage in, in wrestling and reciprocal play. If the bigger rat didn't let the smaller rat win like 30% of the time, he wouldn't engage in play anymore. This is why this is like wrestling and jiu-jitsu are great for kids and having a good classroom environment is because play actually teaches Not any animal, humans, monkeys, whatever. So, and that's what you see. I'm sure you've rolled with black belts that let, let you work stuff too. Sure. I watch my, my dog and cat wrestle all the time. The cat plays guard. The the dog's usually the guard passer. And, you know, you watch dogs wrestle. They exchange positions. I always look at it like jiu-jitsu. Like, they'll take turns playing top and bottom. And it's just like in wrestling. Yeah, what you know, you take turns top and bottom. You take turns top and bottom in jiu-jitsu. And, you know, who's in the dominant position? Who's in the deferential position? And when I say competitive, it's kind of a tangent. When I say competitive, it doesn't always mean it's a, it's a fight to the death. But, but there is some competitiveness or some opposition there. That can vary just depending on whatever. But the main difference is drilling. We know who's going to win. Live, we don't know. Even if, you know, we're playing and the levels of com- competition, it could be varying in how competitive it is. But, you know, I might get something, you might get something. We don't always know. It's not predetermined, basically. Now we get into the, to the live where there's, like, say, some competition. So there's now. We have timing. We have motion. We have resistance. We have variability. And we have opposition. And these things are much less constrained. Now, we have full live and we have live situations. This is where the ecological approach, I think, kind of comes in. They do a lot of what they call small slice games or kind of small sided games, small slice games, or I like to call structured sparring. So they play miniature games where you get a higher density of training. Like the futsal example, futsal is a soccer sport. I think they play in Brazil in a smaller court. So what happens is there's less running and there's more touches. People get to handle the ball more often. They get to make more passes. They get to make more shots. They get to block more shots. Basically the density of of what the action is, is increased. So they're going to improve more. And we saw this example on the, Creed movie, like the rocket from the Rocky franchise, the Creed movie, they stood in, inside the tire and boxed. And it looked pretty cool on the trailer for the movie, but it makes sense because what they're doing with the, where they're working, they're working on being in the pocket. If each person puts their foot in the tire, besides developing some, some nice brain damage, they're going to get really good. And I was just joking a little bit, they're, they're going to get really good at moving their head, they're going to get really good at blocking and parrying. They're not going to be able to use their footwork per se. So you're taking out the footwork, but footwork's important, but we're working on one thing at a time. They're going to work on their ability to bob and weave and duck and read punches coming in. That's my understanding of what, like the ecological approaches. Are those small slice games, or I, I like to call them structured sparring. I would say the difference between structured sparring and regular, like live situations. So live situations is one guy starts mounted, one guy starts in close guard, one guy starts in butterfly guard. Those are live situation. And then the the instructor will say, okay, once you pass, reset. You know that one pass or sweep. I think a lot of jiu-jitsu schools play that. It's like pass or sweep. And then you know, usually we say reset. So I call that a live situation. The small slice game of structured sparring is a little bit different. And, and here's where I would say that. It's looking at a smaller slice even of, of that live situation. So it might be instead of just saying, okay, you're going to mount me. I'm going to try to get out. If I get out, we reset. If you tap me out, we reset. A more structured sparring or a smaller slice game would be like, okay, I'm not going to let you get under my head. I'm going to keep inside position with my legs. I'm going to keep my legs pinned to the ground. I'll not let you hook under my legs or butt with your legs. And then we can do this like one at a time. Like, I'm going to put my elbows down and not let you crawl up my chest. And I think Charles Herrick would probably like have a forearm across the, the hips and be turned sideways and be like, okay, so here I'm not going to let you crawl up at all. And then what you do there from there is like, say a minute, if I can block you from crawling up my body with my forearm across your hips for a minute, the next minute, maybe I go into something else and say, okay, now I'm going to try to bump and get my leg under yours so I can start to affect the knee elbow escape. Something like that. So that's more of an example of the kind of small slice games. And there's a million ways you can do that. And they can be progressive. But you're taking a live situation and you're making it even smaller. So the starting position is very specific. The goals are even more specific. The win condition is very specific. I would say with a live situation, your win condition is a match score. So if, if we're doing a live situation, I start closed guard, you're on top, I'm on bottom. My win condition is to either sweep you or submit you. That's like a match score, right? Like if I sweep you, that's a score in a match. Your win condition is to pass my guard. But if we're doing a, a structure sparring or a small slice game, my goal might just be to break you down. So now I'm working on just breaking you down. Your goal might be just to stand up or just to break my guard. That's more of that that, kind of like that small slice game or that structured sparring. And that can be immensely beneficial and effective, so effective because you're going to get to do the things you want because there's been plenty of times I've had students that needed to pass guard in the last, whatever, minute of the match, and they weren't passing guard. And the main reason is they weren't able to stand up. But I know if we do that, and I get guys so good at standing up, standing up, standing up, that they're going to be much more likely to pass guard. So that's where that, that comes in. And that's more specific, see? And we'll go back to the principles of deliberate practice now. This is why small slice game structured sparring is so effective, because we have very clear objectives. We can gain a lot of feedback. The smaller your situation, the more feedback you can gain. A larger situation, it's, it's so there's so much much it's hard to it's hard to kind of discern your feedback from there so we can get way more feedback from it you know, it's easier to coach you can start to self-correct during that you can start to build as much representations of why you're doing what you're doing and what you fail and so you can go back to it and say hey mount me again I think a lot of problems is people come in and they're like well I'm going to try a new move that I learned today on YouTube well first of all you didn't learn them you didn't learn that we use the term learn I guess it's not wrong that's why you got to watch with that term learn you could learn something and not really be good at it or have skills acquired so they say they want to try something during live roll Maybe it's a sweep from guard. Well, guess what? The guy pulls you into his guard and puts you in rubber guard for freaking five minutes. You know, then you never get to try it. That's why it's like situations are really helpful. Say, hey, I'm going to try this sweep from guard. Or I want to start in half guard with you here or you there. We want to be real specific with our with our training. The other thing, too, I like about the small slice games or the structured sparring is it takes takes some of the competitiveness out of it. Because even if we don't have that much of an angle, at the end of the day, we don't want to get beat all the time. And we don't want the guy to be like, oh, I tapped out so-and-so. And, And you know, you don't want to be the one saying, well, I was trying a new move. We'll just say, like, I want to try this move. Would you mind, you know, getting getting on me? and, And I want you to kind of try to pass my guard as I do this move, you know, or a back escape. Well, let's take my back. Here, I want you to start with this. You can even start with your arm around my neck and I'm going to work on this escape. It kind of takes the ego out of it. That way you can try something new. So like I say, hey, I want you, I'm going to try a new, kind of a new strategy from the back. If you tap me out a few times, what do I care? I said, start on my back. You know, that's a lot different than me going into a match and then doing a bunch of bad techniques so that you can take my back. So I'm missing all that part of training. I don't even know if you're going to take my back or not. You might try, you might try to pull me into 50-50 and hold me there forever. So I say, hey, take my back if you don't mind. I'd like to try this. And we can, after after this, we can work on something you want to work on. You know, ask them after. And I can go back to the drawing board right after that. If I if that thing I worked on messes up, I can go back and say, I'm going to scrap that or I'm going to try to do it again in a different way or or make a correction I was doing and I can keep doing that over and over and over and there's that repeatability. We have to have that repeatability. That's like the futsal that density of training where you make the court smaller so you get more touches per per round and you get to try that more. So we can do that infinitely in jiu-jitsu it's because we, we have situations, you know. You can get as good as you want. And I I understand you said you work a lot of a lot of defense, a lot of pre-stuff, right? Right you're used to letting people start in certain positions on you. And
1: yeah, oftentimes back, as you mentioned, mount, mm-hmm. basically a lot of top position on, yeah. on me in, in various late stage type yeah, of yeah. situations.
0: So what you did, actually, this is, there's two ways you can go about it with, with the structured sparring of the small slice games, the kind of ecological approach. You know, this is my understanding of it. I, it, I might not be totally explaining what the ecological approaches, but this is as far as my understanding, I don't mean to misrepresent anything. I mean, it could be a lot more than what I'm saying. What you're doing is you're kind of structuring your own objectives. So, Me or an instructor like Rob Cole does a lot of the small slice games. So he'll say, he teaches a class, get, stand up without technique. He just gives them kind of objectives. He'll say, pass guard without technique. He just gives them objectives. What you're doing is you're kind of giving your, I think, yourself objectives. You're saying, I want the guy to start on me. And you're probably just trying to do like boxing shoulder or something. So they can't choke you or keep your elbows. in. I know I've watched my preach stuff. Like you're just keeping your elbows in. So you're, you're basically creating your own little game within yourself. That's important too. That's that's a really good thing to do. So you could look at it two ways when you're rolling live. You know, you can have your own mini objectives or you could have a, like a game or something that has those objectives in it. And then after that, you know, you have live situations. We all know what those are. One guy mount, one guy half guard, one guy this, one guy that. Very effective. Even someone just to inco- regularly incorporate live situations in their training, I would think it would increase dramatically over just open roll. I think too much time spent in open roll. I think it's too nebulous. It's too amorphous and it's not specific enough. It's good. It's good in a sense but it's, it's fun, but I think more time should be spent in life situations. I, I would like to see like 80% of training time. I try to spend 80% training time in, in that chasm, in that bridge from cooperative to
1: totally live.
0: So it's, it's drilling with non-competitive resistance and in, in some constrained variables.
1: So we're back to like the 80-20, right?
0: It's back to the 80 yeah. It's back to the eight twenty. Then the other parts with uh, like structured sparring. And more time in structured sparring than in, in life situations. And those are, like I said, they're similar, but the thing is structured sparring is just a smaller life situation, a more specific life situation. A lot, and like I said, life situations are great though. They really are. They're so easy to implement. You don't have to do much thinking about it. That would be a good place for someone to start. And then if they start with life situations, they would discover many objectives they could have for themselves or a way they could structure that life situation to to make it even different like that now with the small slice games or the small sided games there's there's some things that I think can become very interesting and I heard a wrestling coach say this he said most wrestling games weren't very effective but they, there's one called cat bands where they would you get the ankle bands that like they use for scoring and you put them around your ankles and you have you try to take off the ankle bands that game's amazing and he he said it in this video he said you want to believe the scrambles you get it is absolutely amazing I mean if you take kids or adults or anyone and you give them the objective to get and take the other guy's ankle bands off you see like really great shooting you see really good low singles, you'll see sit-outs, you'll see sprawls, you'll see sprawls of sit-outs. You'll see all this wrestling stuff happen that they technically haven't learned or even practiced the required skills for. There's a really good example that small slice games can be this structured sparring. Another reason why it's so effective is a small T versus big T technique, and that's a concept I have. It's like most jiu is literally, I call it small T technique, is positioning yourself. Most of it is not like, you know, say your move, your, your scissor sweep, your arm drag, whatever that happens. But most of the time in that you're positioning yourself to hit those moves. So how do we directly work on your ability to maintain position? I call it live positioning, I-N-G, because it's an active verb. We're positioning ourselves. I was wrong with Joey Carter at Love Charter's Camp, and he's strong. Like, he has a strong grip. He has a strong neck, and he's a very much like Gi guy, so he has that really relaxed pace. We had a really fun roll, and I you know, I had that more explosive style, but he would just block me with a lot. Like, his foot would come up and block me. I would go to hit my regular moves. Like, i go to club the head and pin the ankle run around the guard, and his other foot would just come and block me. And what technique is that? That's not a technique. Okay, we're going to drill how you stop someone from passing your guard. This guy clubs your head. He does this. He does that. You raise your foot up. That's not real effective because there's not much to that, right? But that's what made it really difficult for me to pass this guard because he kept blocking with his foot. But what that was, is I call that small T technique. That's live, That's positioning. It's because he spent so much, time, so much time on the mat rolling, right? That's how you develop those reflexes. That's your small T technique. You get someone like Z guard, you know, like uh, the knee shield. It's a major pain, isn't it? Like, you feel like you can't get that out of the way. Then once you do, then their hands are coming up and blocking you, right? What technique is that? It's positioning. I call that small T technique. It's their ability to maintain that position. And then from there, they're going to hit their offensive techniques. And I think the problem we run into is a lot of times is we just practice. We just train our big T techniques. Okay, we're going to work a sweep. We're going to work in reversal. We don't have a systematic way to train ourselves and that small t technique aside from just totally live rolling, which is good. It will develop, but we could develop it more effectively, more efficiently with good training, like drilling with some non-competitive resistance and some constrained variables and with small slice games, you know, structure sparring. I, a lot of times I call those things live positioning. I develop I structure them away so that we really focus on that live positioning. Like I'll say one guy sitting guard on bottom. Top guy, I want you to flatten them out. Top guy flattens them out. Bottom guy don't get flattened. Or I'll say, top guy, I want you to flatten that guy or bo- maybe body lock him. I want you to body lock him. Bottom guy, I want you to try to arm drag him. Once you do that, guess what? All the positioning happens. Because for me, on bottom, I not to get body locked. I got to be what? I got to crunch up. I got to have my head in. I got to use my hands like I use my feet. I'm using all my live positioning. The top guy, too, is developing good positioning. After so many years of training, my positioning and my skills improved even more just from doing live positioning training, just from doing these drills, not from rolling full live from doing the live positioning or structured sparring because I started saying when we did these arm drag drills because I was on top I went to body lock the bottom guy who was in sitting guard I started developing the strategy it's it's nothing earth shattering but for me I I put it together my hands came to their hands first my head came to their head I was on my toes that was my strategy every time before I was just willy-nilly maybe relied on my experience to get people there but I was like head comes here elbows are in hands to hands now and I'm on my toes, and now I begin to work and I begin to look to off balance them to get to that, and that was all developed and it improved me tremendously. And I feel like I'm more impervious to arm drags than I've ever been, just from doing that live positioning and focusing on that, on, like I said, on that small t technique, which is which is so important. And like I said, that's where you should spend 80 percent of your time training. I think right now we have to go into because we're talking so much about small t technique is the four reasons how we lose a match. Now this is another model that you can that you can break down, you know, any way you want it. Technical errors, tactical errors, perception, decision, action disparity, and other physical factors, which would be strength, conditioning, whatever, you know, and you could say mental things, who wants it more, those things are all good. We're not going to talk at all about conditioning, strength, or any physical attributes or mental attributes right now, because that's not what it talks about. Those are hugely important. Not going to talk about them because we're talking about skill today. So, a technical error, a tactical error, and perception, decision, action disparity. So, a technical error is doing a technique in a way that's like not that good. Whether your toolbox isn't that good, you don't have very well developed techniques, or whether you're doing the technique wrong, that's kind of like the technical error. Tito Ortiz in his fight with Guy Mesker, Tito was a decent wrestler. The guy put him in a guillotine. Tito tried to sit up and pick him up. What that does is when you sit up and try to pick someone from a guillotine, unless your head's really loose already and you're going to slip out, it makes it tighter. That was a technical error. We see technical errors sometimes on like triangle choke defense. The guy picks the guy up and tries to slam him, slams him a little bit, ends up tighter in the triangle. I think that's a little bit of a lot of tournaments right now, but like in MMA we see that. So maybe if he would have stood up and just kept his head up and blocked, it might it have been better. So that's where we see those kind of technical errors. A tactical error is a strategy that's not good. It's when someone kind of doesn't fight, follow the strategy or has a poor fight IQ. We see this a ton in MMA, especially. You see these wrestlers that discover they can punch people and they forget how to wrestle and, and stuff like that. Guys are like, you didn't, you're didn't. you not listening to your corner. Like the guy's he's like, are you listening to anything I'm saying? I've had fighters like that. You know, I was like, are you listening to anything I'm saying at all? But that's the most infuriating as a coach. Those are tactical errors when there's a lapse in your strategy. So the technique was, you know, maybe your toolbox is insufficient. You're doing your technique wrong. Your technique might be good, but you're using the wrong kind of strategy against that person. I'm a top player, but sometimes some people are so doggone tough on bottom. I might spend my whole match trying to pass their guard and I get nowhere. Maybe if I pull guard, I can sleep real quick and, you know, do that. So sometimes it can be, counter, it can be counterintuitive as, as well. Perception, decision, action disparity. This is one of the main, the most important things and so overlooked in martial arts and in jiu-jitsu in general. This is, this is so important. Where I initially started to think about this was from the book Talents That Were Rated by Jeff Colvin, based on a lot of Dr. Erickson's work. And he talked about how tennis players serve so quickly, so fast, that the, the person receiving the serve has no idea, cannot see where the ball is going. So how do they manage to hit it at all? Well, they must be reading subtle cues in the, in the server's body which lets them know that's a mental representation they have. That's a chunk of skill or information they have. They're not saying they're dissecting it. They're not doing math in their head, right? That's why it's a mental representation. It's already chunked in there. So they can react and you see where that ball's going. It's the same thing with a, with a baseball pitch. Technically, when you look at a baseball pitch, it should be like impossible to hit because it's, it's traveling so fast you can't see it. But they're reading subtle cues in the pitcher's body because they have those mental representations built from years of training. That's why like training with a pitching machine doesn't necessarily get you to where you need to be because you're not reading any cues.
1: Or the tennis ball machine, yeah, same thing. The tennis yeah.
0: ball machine, yeah. I mean, yeah, maybe you're working on your ability to swing your arm, but you're not working on any type of perception. Your ability to perceive, your ability to read what's going on, the process what's going on is like everything, and really no one's talking about it.
1: There's a fascinating story, Andrew Agassi, I believe, versus uh, Boris Becker, and Boris Becker destroyed everyone with this serve. Like, no one could return. What Agassi notices is that when Boris Becker would do this particular serve, as he would throw the ball up, he would stick his tongue out to the right corner. Every time, uh, kind of thing. And he picked up on this tell, you know, on this body cue, and he returned all of these serves that normal people wouldn't. And he went on to win the match and, and really broke Becker mentally because no one could do this until the individual figured it out. You
0: know, he had the read on it. That was, it was so fascinating. You have to imagine how good his processing ability is that to be able to make that calculation in real time. From across the court, see the guy's tongue move this way, know that the ball's going this way and be able to react to that. It's, it's amazing. And that's why that ability to, to what I call processing or perception is really everything in, in any type of sport or martial art. And that's why when you try a move, and my students say this to me sometimes, they're like, what did I do wrong? I said nothing. It's perception, decision, action disparity. It's a PDA disparity. I can see what they're doing coming a mile away. And I can hit moves on them three or four in a row. What you call the blue screen. When you open up too many apps on your computer, that's why you told me to shut down most of my stuff for today's interview. That's what someone that's more experienced can do to a less experienced opponent. You can throw so much stuff at them, you literally shut them down. You give them that blue screen. So perception, decision, action, and that's why like a tennis machine, a pitching machine isn't real effective. And, uh, again, to pick on Instagram, I see these like guys having broomstick with a boxing glove on it, going like this. The guy, oh, what, what is this? How's that helping? You know, there's some things. Maybe there's some merit to like the slip ball. I think Mike Tyson usually put up a ball like this, and he's slipping side to side. That's good, but it gets. It's is working his conditioning it's not helping him see when actual punches are coming at him it's just getting him used to very effective at mechanic i would say mechanically moving side to side but it's devoid of any perception so this is where it's most important especially somewhat in drilling but in live situations especially small slice games it gives us the best ability to develop our perception decision action loop that really helps us i i think more than anything because it has the live elements there. It has the chaos of live, but the chaos is not so chaotic that you can't respond to it because just a full live roll might be too much to process, but it's a more processable chunk when it's in a live situation or a structured sparring small slice game. The most important thing to develop is that perception, decision, action loop. It is absolutely the most effective thing to develop. And this occurred to me too when I was teaching kickboxing. A lot of my students you know, were getting leg kicked. It wasn't it was within the own class, you know, but we had some good leg kick. What does every coach say? Got to check the leg kick. Got to check the leg kick. Now, here's, here's what's maddening about that. They say he must not know how to check the leg kick. Well, guess what? He knows how to check the leg kick. What's the problem? He's not reading the what? The leg kick coming in time to check the leg kick. I could take an unskilled person. I could grab someone at the supermarket and say, hey, we're do, do an experiment with me. I'm going to leg kick you. I'm going to tell you when I'm going to leg kick you. Don't let me leg kick you. Guess what? They would move back. They would do something. They would block it. Anyone can block something when they see it coming. You don't necessarily need to know something, right? It's not that they didn't know how to check the leg kick. It's that they weren't reading it in time. There was two things here. The PDA thing, there's no shortcut to it. There kind of Well, there is a shortcut. It's It's doing small slice games, structure sparring, that type of thing. But it still takes time to develop. You have to, you have to spend the time in there. Just like Andre Agassi, you have to be able, you have to spend the time in there in those live conditions it's under some live circumstances to read it. You guys can just wait and try to, we can do some drills and you know, try to get better at this, or we can develop a kind of workaround. So sometimes you can develop a workaround. And the workaround was this. I said, after they leg kick you, even if you get leg kicked, Okay. say you're not fat, you're not your perception is not good enough to read their lay kick and they lay kick you. I said after they lay kick you, even if you get lay kicked, I want you to come in and just just punch at them. Don't be like, oh, I just got lay kicked. I want that to be your objective to come in. And because a lot lot of times, you know, the guy lay kicks. Oh, yeah, I just lay kicked them and they're not ready for the, the counter. Okay, we have on shin pads. After they lay kick you, I want you to come in. That would make it more likely that you're going to get lay kick. Now there's still a skill develop, you know, still a perception, decision, action thing to that too, how fast your response will be. That was one of the things. The other thing too is I said I wanted you to to, to change your stance more of like a boss rooting stance. How he stands with his one leg, his his one uh, leg out. He stands a little more square, with his leg out, so he's less susceptible to lay kicks. I said we might do that, and it's always a trade off. If you close up one side a little tighter, there's a little more of a leak somewhere else, right? You can't block everything. That's why fighting works. That's why kickboxing. That's why jujitsu works. You can't block everything. If you block something more here, you're gonna be a little bit more open there. It's kind of like an army or a warfare. You have a like a role-playing game on your computer. We're gonna send troops here to this wall, we're gonna send troops to that wall. You know, we're fighting battles on different fronts. So those were a few of our strategies. And the other one was we're you know, we're gonna move more, we're gonna move in and out more. So we had to have some workarounds for that. But I think a lot of people are still teaching with the paradigm that, like, just knowing something is you're gonna be able to do it. Oh, here's the counter to this move. The reason he's not countering the move, the reason he's not blocking the move is because he's not seeing it in time. And that's a much more complex issue than saying, oh, his, he doesn't know the right defense. It's, it's a much more complex issue than just tac- technical or tactical. And then we can, it's easy to conflate these things and be like, oh, I'm just going to buy a new instructional video. Instructional videos are great, don't get me wrong. But just seeing just on like an instructional video, like, oh, this is how this world champion blocks a kick, I'm going to be able to are not going to be able to block a kick until you develop the perception decision action. And that's most effectively done in structured sparring small slice games. There are some workarounds, some other things you can do tactically or fight IQ-wise to, to kind of mitigate that.
1: So, Mike, given all that, how can the coach or student incorporate this?
0: Excellent question. So, there's yeah, there's a lot of information there. I would say that to start to incorporate it, I would keep in mind large schools that the paradigm is we're drilling very cooperatively, then we're rolling live. What's in between that? When you're drilling a move, I would ask someone to give you some non-competitive resistance. Can you move your arm here? Can you do this here? Does this feel like this is working? And hopefully, they don't give you like a whole doctoral thesis on it. They just move around a little bit and tell you something. They give you feedback. They give you information by moving. So I would add a little bit of that what we call non-competitive resistance when you're drilling. I would I try to add a little bit of timing, a little bit of motion, and a little bit of variability when you're drilling. And keep in mind that you have to challenge yourself. You can't just do things in a naive fashion and expect that you know good results. You have to challenge your current limitations. I would try to do that when you're drilling, to, to add some live elements that are constrained, that are controlled, and to make sure that you're encoding success when you're drilling. Do life situations, even if, you know, you totally aren't comfortable yet with the small slice games or whatever, do your life situations. And then you can, once you build those more understanding, more mental representations, you can start to make those even smaller, either by constructing the life situation in a way or constructing the parameters that way, or in your own mind, doing your own mini objectives. Say, I'm just, my whole goal is not to let this guy under my arms the whole round. I'm going to let him have my back and I'm not even going to try to escape. I'm just going to not let him choke me. And that's interesting, too, because what happens when you get real good at that is you'll probably escape will happen itself. Because to really block the choke, you have to unsquare yourself. So if someone has your back, I think the best way to block the choke is turn your shoulder into the middle of their sternum. So guess what? You're 90% of the way to escape. Okay, maybe you say, just play, I want you to try to sweep me from sitting guard. You try to score. And guess what? Maybe I'm not even going to try to pass your guard. I'm just going to try to off-balance you. I'm going to try to club your head and knock into your form. I'm going to try to pick up your ankles. I'm going to try to you know, twirl you around. And then guess what? You're going to start to see where all those passes are. You're going to see those passes open themselves to you. So I would start to incorporate to add a little bit of resistance to your drilling and to do life situations. Always do life situations and always try to get the feedback, have clear objectives you your training. The best feedback is that which you can get yourself. I think that would be a really good way to start incorporating those things.
1: So for the listeners and the coaches, again, can you quickly recap of everything that we went over today?
0: We talked about naive practice versus effective practice. Just doing something doesn't necessarily mean you're getting better at it. Just doing something is not effective practice. That's often termed naive practice. It's because of automaticity. Good is the enemy of great Being just good enough may plateau you and you may not get better at it. You have to have clear objectives. You have to push your current limitations. You have to have some good instruction and good coaching. You have to be getting feedback, hopefully from a coach, from a partner, and most importantly from yourself, feedback and instruction. Okay, There should be some standards developed to what you're doing. and The whole time, you should be building the fundamentals and the principles. So those are your mental representations of how we chunk information. And the mental representations refer to not only the theoretical knowledge or the theoretical learning, but also the procedural learning and the procedural abilities of your actual skills. So this is how we chunk our learning and our skill acquisition. And oftentimes those need to be deconstructed too. You see, when you're teaching something, those need to be deconstructed. That's why sometimes when someone knows something really well, they have to actually get in there and deconstruct that because that's all already chunked into bits of information. So from there, that's the model of deliberate practice, okay? That keeps us from having naive practice. Then we talked about when when we're training, we train totally cooperative, totally live. Most of our improvement is going to happen within that middle ground, that chasm between totally cooperative and totally live. We need to make our drilling, put some live elements that are controlled, but we're still successful. We code success in drilling. And in our live, we need to make that more constrained and more specific so we can actually gain some effective feedback from it, have clear objectives, have feedback, and be able to manage the feedback and be able to self-correct our mistakes and, and, and that type of thing. So we need to spend more time in that middle between totally static and totally live. Middle ground, I believe, is the most important, most overlooked. And we need to focus on how are we losing? Is it tactical error, technical air, or perception, decision, action disparity? Technical error is an error in technique. Tactical error is basically an error in the strategy of using the wrong move at the wrong time. And perception decision action loop is your ability to process that often is like your skills. And that's the, probably the most overlooked element. And that's a lot of times your small T technique. How do we position ourselves? How do we process? How do we read what the other person's doing? And sometimes when you're facing an upper belt and they smoke you, it's because of that. It's not necessarily because your technique wasn't that good. It's not necessarily because your, your tactics weren't that good. It's because there was a large gap in the perception, decision, and action loop. And, but then going back, the best way to develop that perception, decision, action loop is to spend more time in your structured sparring and your live positioning, training your small slice games.
1: Fantastic. So Mike, where can we get more information about you, everything you're up to?
0: My Instagram is, is Wrecking Crew BJJ. Facebook, Michael Demco. I have a website, Wrecking Crew BJJ. My email is Wrecking Crew JJ at gmail.com. Wrecking Crew JJ at gmail.com. I have one video through BJJ Fanatics on the cow catcher cobra move. I'm wanting to release another one on this whole project of deliberate practice and uh, how to incorporate this, how to incorporate effective practice in the jiu-jitsu it is a daunting task because it's not going to run like a regular instructional video. In my mind, I'm, I'm kind of getting there on that, but I still have some some work to do. It's not just I, I'm going to you know, sit down with a series of moves. I have to explain concepts like we did in this interview and, and make it translate well to a video. But the goal is to have that in the near future by spring or summertime. You know, stay tuned to that. I, I think it could be a major thing that could, yeah, it could help people out.
1: I think this is gonna be wonderful for students and coaches and super nerds like us who uh, really want to get into this. This was a masterclass today. So thank you so much for your time and everything.
0: I enjoyed it. Yeah.
1: Well, everyone, thanks for watching, listening out there. Like, share, and subscribe. Check out our merchandise. we got a lot of great stuff for sale. Coffee cups, uh, sweatshirts, hats, et cetera, stickers. Go get your forever white belt swag. And uh, we're available everywhere. You guys want to download your stuff, even on the Amazon devices, YouTube. Uh, we got a Facebook page. Check it out. Thanks so much for your time. We will see you next time. Michael, again, it was a tremendous honor. Thanks so much, man.
0: Man, thanks for having me. It was a blast.
1: All right, everyone. See you guys next time.